1: Hello everybody and welcome to the 55th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast hosted by GP Pittsburgh winner Travis Allen. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin, and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering.
0: Good evening, everybody. Uh, Glad to be here tonight. Looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of our listeners. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby.
1: Uh, a bit of information from one of our new sponsors face2facegames.com is Canada's largest Magic the Gathering online store with the best selection of singles and products nationwide they also host the face-to-face tournament series Canada's only cross-country tournament circuit which you can check out at f 2 fseriesfacetofacegamescom 2 facegamescom and just so you know uh, face-to-face games pricing is available on the mtgprice.com website uh, and uh, they do ship Uh, cross-border at very reasonable rates.
0: Okay. Well, uh, this week we have a show in four segments. Segment one is Top Movers, where we will look at the cards that moved the most in price this past week. Segment two is Cards to Watch. These are cards James and I uh, expect to have price movement in the future. Segment three is our metagame week week in review. We will be talking about Grand Prix Pittsburgh this past week on the standard event. And segment four, we're going to do, uh, readers, qu- questions from the readers. I guess listeners, probably not switch readers. Uh, we have two quick things we're going to touch on. And then we have a couple, couple topics that people ask us about. We'll, we'll kind of go through those. So we are going to start this week, uh, in top movers. Our first card is Foil Sleight of Hand from 9th edition. And I'm pretty sure we talked about this card not that long ago. Uh, yeah, the 7th edition one was on our list last week. I've got the ninth edition one here uh this week. Looks like inventory is uh only at a (laughs) hundred dollars. Uh but there is a market price of forty dollars. So it looks like after the seventh edition foil was gone, somebody moved over and cleaned out the ninth edition ones. Not a play that I would be eager to make with Modern Masters 3 right around the corner. Uh and this basically being the only blue cantrip in the format that's legal. So I could see them reprinting this and I don't think original foils are really gonna hold much weight. Uh, maybe seventh edition runs at best. But here we are anyways. Yeah, I mean this is the, the motion here
1: is on the premise that between ad nauseam, uh, the reinvigorated blue red gifts storm uh, deck list and pure steel Paladin, Uh, as well as the occasional blue-red prowess deck, you have a bunch of different decks that are running the card, um, because with Cataxian Probe gone, um, it's either this or Serum Visions, depending on uh, what you're trying to accomplish with your deck, and uh, in many cases, Sleight of Hand seems to be slightly better. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's not a foil I want to be holding if fresh foils with great art show up on the scene.
0: Nope. Um, Does Pure Soul Paladin deck even play this? Uh, Yeah, some versions uh, do. Visions. I don't remember playing that.
1: It it just totally depends. Like, some of the lists aren't running at all. Uh, If you check out the lists on Goldfish, some of them are, some of them aren't. Um, It's one of the cards that's a variable slot, so it's not going to get a a massive push from that. There's also the fact that tons of people have been playing that deck on stream, but to varying levels of success. So until it actually wins something, it will be in that category that Amulet Bloom was in before it started dominating.
0: Well, uh, you know, I keep selling retracts, um and i this is the deck i want to play at vegas so everyone just needs to knock it off like (laughs) don't make the don't make the deck popular i'm already selling the cards i don't need you guys to win with it just cool it off i do not need to fight fight through sideboard hate in at vegas in a couple months so all you streamers please stop uh why don't you give us your next card
1: all right. So next on the list this week, we have Wheel and Deal out of uh, Onslaught, uh, taking uh, a move from, well, these are the foils in specific, moving from about $10 to $17. That's about a 70% gain. Uh, these foils are uh, a low supply thing. Um, this is a, a super weird card, right?
0: yeah it's other you wheel fortune other people and then you get to draw a card and it's four mana instant i don't know i mean this looks like a a card that i would have expected to move back with necosar but i don't know what the deal is now
1: yeah i mean that. i have no idea what that card is being played in give me a second here
0: yeah we are Bear with us. We just uh, sometimes we look at these cards and we just have no clue where they come from. I mean, I, like you know,
1: according to EDH Racks, it's in like 600 Nekazar decks. So I guess that for people that are interested in replicating the the wheel effect, um, keep in mind that whenever an opponent draws a card, Nekazar deals one damage to that player. Right. So this does do a, a crap ton of damage all at once.
0: Th- this must just have been like two copies were left on the market and somebody must have decided to buy them. I mean, I don't know what else it could possibly be. It doesn't really work with any of the new commanders. No, it's a Nekosar thing. Cause
1: like you've got four players, they take 28 damage and you draw a card for four mana.
0: Yeah. I mean, which may, which it makes sense. It's good in that deck. You just, I guess you would have expected to see it. It's such a it's such a specific card. I would have expected to see that movement a year ago or two years ago, a while I, ago.
1: I suspect I suspect this is the kind of foil you can find sitting around in bulk bins and like dollar binders in stores that are aren't really keeping up to speed. So maybe something to keep your eye out on if you like to pick up random uh, foil specs for EDH.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so our next card is Colossus of Sardia from Antiquities. Um, this is just another one of those ancient card. There weren't a lot of copies around. Somebody picked up, you know, the last cheap near mint Antiquities version. Um, they're getting. <laughs> they're they're getting. Really extending what cards are willing to look at here is a nine mana nine nine that you have to pay nine to untap. <laughs> uh, is Voltaic illegal in that in the 93 94? I'm not sure, I don't it doesn't matter so.
1: Those decks are so good, they can they, they're not worried about a nine nine for nine, uh, <laughs> even if it actually
0: yeah, I mean it's it's ten bucks right now. I mean there's several copies around ten dollars, and uh, I mean but the market price is eight. So I don't know. I guess this is this this it my thing here it says it went from four fifty to eight fifty. So I guess it sounds like somebody bought a copy. It. I mean this isn't even a reserve
1: list card, and this is just the latest in a long line of uh, original printing like ninety three, ninety four, ninety five cards that are being targeted, kind of one after the other as soon as the inventory gets low enough. I cannot bring myself to push money in this direction because I just don't have a ton of faith in people trying to finish these sets and holding these plateaus. But at the same time, I just think there's better options. I mean, I think that there's some money to be made here, but picking up a $4 card that goes to 8 and then waiting for a buyer is not where I want to be.
0: Yeah, that's the problem, is they're so illiquid. You know, we saw, and we saw the same thing with Sinbad, like, a week or two ago, where it was not on the reserve list, but the Arabian Nights copies moved, because, I mean, the Arabian Nights, I guess.
1: And this is the game. Um. kind of like, when a collector is finishing a set, you know, which is the only, like, ostensibly the only reason to be buying a card like this. As opposed to, like, say, Beta Hypnotic Spectre, which is definitely a 93-94 thing. It's a good, like, a powerful card in that format. It, when yeah. you buy them, you might buy four at a time. But Class of is only getting bought by guys like my dad who were trying to finish their antiquity set or whatever. And, you know, they're not going to buy four. They're going to buy one. So you don't get the, you know, if it goes from four to eight, you don't get the playset benefit where you're in theory up 16 bucks minus fees and you still net 10. You're only getting the $4 minus fees and that's just not enough. Yep. Yep. Um, All right. You want to finish this off then? Breaking and entering foils from Dragon's Maze. Wow. Not a set that makes it on this show very often. Um, Making a move from $3 to $10 on the basis that casting them for free with things like uh, brain in a jar or the new expertise cycle can potentially do all sorts of busted things in modern um, a whole bunch of streamers have been running a whole bunch of decks uh, different configurations of trying to cast things for free for the last few weeks it has been very entertaining um, it's not clear that any of these things are viable uh, beyond tier 3 in modern um, but I suspect that at some point one of these decks will break out because the potential is definitely there
0: yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, breaking and entering, I guess, all things considered, isn't too surprising given that, you know, it's a it's already a mill card. There was a sort of, sort of an undercurrent of popularity there. It's one of the better fuse cards. Um, I mean, really, the only two fuse cards that are any good are this and back and call. Um so interesting card. Oh, uh, well, I remember there's,
1: there's another one I saw, though, in a list this week. And um, the other one I saw people running was catch and release. Um, Oh,
0: yeah, that's the one where you gain control of something and then everybody sacks stuff.
1: Yeah, but the interesting part is that you gain control of a permanent. So you can take a Planeswalker, you can take a land, um, nothing's off the table, and you untap it, it gains haste till the end of turn. And then the release side is each player sacks an artifact, creature, enchantment, lander, and uh, and a Planeswalker. So um, you could potentially grab something devastating like a Gideon, use its ability then make it one of the things. Oh no, I guess you don't get a, a window to use the ability or anything, but um, you still do get to steal one of their things and then clear the board. So yeah. Um, uh I don't know how good that's gonna be end up being versus something like Back and Call, which is a little more uh a reliable of an endgame plan. Um but breaking and entering mills eight cards and then lets you take a creature card from the graveyard um onto the battlefield under your control, it gains haste until the end of turn. So if you flip over something big um from a deck like Tron um or somebody that's running something kind of scary um uh that doesn't go straight back in their deck like Emmercool would, I guess, right?
0: Uh yeah, well, no, this still works. Uh You can still steal Emrakul with this.
1: Because both because, sides resolve at the same time?
0: Yeah, the trigger doesn't resolve yet. You can't get, like, Darksteel Colossus or Progenitus, but you can get Emrakul with it. In fact, that was how you beat Tron game one in the Mill decks. Because you would try and put Breaking and Entering under your own Shelldock Isle. You would mill them until they had less than 20. You would mill them until they had less than 20 cards. And also in that 20 cards was Emerickle. So they didn't shuffle yet. And then when you milled them again and hit Emerickle, you would cast your Breaking and Entering at instant speed off Shelldock Isle in response to the shuffle trigger and steal it and attack them with it. It was it was. I don't think I ever won a game that way, <laughs> and I don't think anyone that played Mill ever won a game that way either, but technically, it was a line.
1: Yeah, fair enough. All right, let's, uh, <laughs> it's a short list this week, uh, but there were some funny cards in there, so I'm, I am amused. Uh, let's move yeah. on to cards to watch.
0: Yeah, 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 sure. So uh, you've got one more than me, so start us off.
1: Uh, so speaking of casting
0: things for free, um, Brain in a Jar of Foils
1: are $2.50, and that's a rare from Shadows Over Innistrad that is going to have potential legs ca- in casual circles. Um, this is uh, a Johnny card if I've ever seen one. Um, it's playable in EDH. It could be playable in Modern. If it's played, it's played as a 4-of, usually. Um, and I like $2.50 foil rares that are have that kind of potential long-term demand profile. Um, there are plenty of these around, Uh, Let me see how much is currently on TCG player. Uh, Something like 30 results. So call that something like 50 or 60 copies before we get moved up the chain. Um, I think this ends up being a $10 foil down the road. It's a fairly unique effect. I don't expect it to see reprint anytime in the next three to five years. Um, And uh, yeah, it casts instants and sorceries uh, for free out of your hand um, or pretty close to free and lets you scry to kind of find solutions later um all of that adds up to
0: open-ended synergy that i like yeah uh for sure um I mean, it's, it's a very interesting card it's gonna be i think it'll be a kind of a quiet sleeper nobody will notice it and then the foils will suddenly be expensive one day i can definitely see that um okay i like it uh my first pick this week is not too sexy but it's a collected company just in non-foils from Dragon's Maze. Um, you know, I don't think we're going to see that in Modern Masters this year. I guess this is predicated on the fact that we don't see it in Modern Masters. I don't expect to. I wouldn't be surprised to see it in the next one. So in 2019, um, if we're all still playing Magic and not uh, dead of nuclear warfare. Um, <laughs> but, but Collective Company is still like 10 bucks. Uh And, you know, the supply is reasonably deep. But it's the, I just checked, like the fourth most played green spell in modern and the other ones above it are like ancient stirrings and nature's claim. So not, uh, not too much competition there. It's, it's like the best green spell that actually does something meaningful. Um, it's a really powerful card and it's, you know, I feel like tomorrow you could look at the price of this card and it would be $20 and you'd be like, Oh yeah. Okay. That seems reasonable. Um, it's just, it's, that's, that's a very reachable price for this card. And, uh, another, another year or so of, Uh, of drain on collected company is definitely going to push the price closer to 20. So, um, I mean, you know, I I guess the opportunity cost is a little on the higher side, um, for, for what's likely to be a little longer of a, of a a maturation period. But I, I do think that this is $20 before it sees a reprint, so long as it isn't this year.
1: Okay. So a few things here, um, we've called this a couple times this year. Um, it's been taking, uh, a while for inventory to drain um, copies definitely still available in the 10 to 12 ish range with most of the copies you're likely to be able to get your hands on closer to 12 um, and there's something like 90 results left on TCG Player, so call that like 150 copies before this really moves but it only ever gets bought in four ofs uh, the the card is uh, proving to be fairly resilient in modern it fits into a lot of different decks pretty much anything that wants to be taking advantage of Uh, a mid-game restock effect to get additional creatures into play and cause trouble. Everything from uh, uh, Abzan lists to combo-oriented lists to um, uh, Bant lists Uh, spirits list and so forth has been running the card so it's got a lot of different homes and i also like that you see like a stratification of the pricing on tcg not everybody is willing to sell this card at 12 dollars. you got some people posting it at 13 at 14 15 16 it's not going to take too much longer you know i give it say probably six months to 12 months for it to make a real move Um, and the other thing is we know for a fact it's not getting printed in modern masters 2017 because cons block is not included
0: that's a really good point i forgot about that
1: so, I mean, I think I, I think the Pick a Solid, um, it's one of the, the better cards in Modern that uh, has not hit a $20 price point that it probably will deserve. Um, and I think you're right. Like, we, we might get it the next time. It's, a, it's probably a shoe-in for Modern Masters 2019, um, assuming that Mo- <laughs> Modern is not on a slippery slope uh, based on, you know, recent indications that uh, the format is not going to have quite as much support as Wizards was giving it a few years ago.
0: And I was going to say something, even if you if you didn't bring that up, is I guess the other part of this is I like this, but I have to throw in the caveat that I am becoming a little less confident in modern specs than I was in the past. Um, I still think cards like Retract can be great choices because they can explode, but you're sort of like staples that you know kind of grind up over time um i don't know if that's quite as strong as it used to be i feel like that market's getting a little soft so i have to say i've been looking a lot at a lot more at edh cards um when i'm trying to consider my longer plays than modern i mean all i have to do is
1: look at my pile of abrupt decays to know that um a fantastic card Uh, in modern may not necessarily move especially at rare it it makes me more inclined to be looking at four of mythics than four of uh, rares Um, and especially if they're say fall set rares versus say winter small set rares or late summer small set rares that typically have more potential long term because those sets just aren't opened as much
0: yeah yeah Um, okay so what do you got next for us
1: so keeping all of that in mind, um, I've still been putting some money into both SRAM's expertise and Yeheni's expertise. Um I'm not super stoked about the buy-in point for these cards. I, I picked them up in the like four to five dollar range. Um I think that they're ten dollar plus cards down the road for um the same reasons we were discussing before, that because they can cast almost anything for free, um uh uh in both cases, uh three casting costs are less. Um it, it's not unreasonable to imagine that they will find a home, um, both in casual and EDH circles, as well as potentially in modern if people figure out the right deck. Um, uh, Sram's expertise does some really cool things in black white tokens that I've been testing. Yehennes is is more of a it seems like it needs to be more metagame dependent. I mean, you have to have a bunch of three toughness or less creatures in the in the uh, metagame to uh, make a minus three minus three sweeper effect. Uh, relevant and you want to be dropping something fairly specific after that um, so you know I, I don't think you need to be in a rush to pick these up they're certainly not at low supply by any means um, and I think it's just something to put on your list as watch what happens with these uh, the expertise cycle because at some point somebody will figure out how to get one of these into a top eight and then that
0: foil will take off. Sure I mean I think these are ex- very interesting cards um, that are going to be kind of on the fridges and interesting in modern for the formats, you know, continued existence. Um, so yeah, these, these prices are, you know, it's hard for me to, <laughs> I guess when I look at these, I'm a little more interested in the card that they're casting for free right now. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't movement opportunity for these at all. Uh, you know, you could see, um, you know, if you're using SRAM's Expertise, or Yohannes Expertise to cast Restore Balance for Intra int, instance. Um, you know, the Restore Balance is going to move huge, but the Yohannes will also move. Uh, there's going to be room for that. So I think these are great cards to keep an eye out for, at, you know, when you're trading fm FNM or what have you, because um, they're they're pretty much all upside. And they're all good in EDH too, right? Like you have that additional vector. Uh, my only concern with yahani's Expertise is that's the game day promo, Right. Uh, the uh, full art promo yeah, yeah. and it is pretty cool looking
1: uh, that, that's a very good point point. and, and SRAM's expertise is actually cheaper right now it's closer to four whereas yehenny's is at six so if i had to pick one of the two i'd go with SRAMs. um I, as i said i don't think there's a rush and i think that you're going to get a chance at these foils uh out of discounts during like early summer sales um so just keep an eye out for it
0: yeah SRAMs. sarams is also really interesting that it's um you know, that's, that's a cool card in a deck that doesn't exist today, which is sort of tempered steel affinity, because you get to drop three one, one artifacts off of expertise and also cast your tempered steel with it. Uh, or something else along that line. So it's you you could see it show up, especially if Mox Opal ever gets banned in modern. Um, I would imagine affinity turns more towards a tempered steel build. Um, and it would be very good there. So that's a, not, not, not a relevant vector today, but at least, you know, a pathway. Um, okay, my other card this week is Blasphemous Act, but I'm looking at foils specifically. This was reprinted in Commander 2014 and 16 recently, um, so it's the non foils. There's a million copies of, but the foils we still only have Innistrad copies of, which is uh, was it, like 2009, I think, uh, at this point. So going quite a ways back on foil Blasphemous Acts, the supply is low. Um looks like you could probably buy in around 6 right now between 6 and 7 maybe. I did manage to find a playset at 5 and I picked those up. Um uh, but I haven't seen any that cheaper elsewhere. Uh this card is prob- possibly the best red card in EDH or I mean I mean it's definitely um contestable. Uh you know, you're basically paying one mana to do 13 to everything. Um there's very few creatures in EDH that generally survive that. Um, it wipes tokens out really well. It hits everything in the middle of the road. Um, and it does damage too, which is, uh, is useful. Um, sometimes it can really hose you, but a lot of times it's useful because the damage counts for something. Um, you know, there's a, there's a trigger of some sort. So I like that aspect. It also has a high casting cost, which is, uh, so it should trigger, um, like uh yidris triggers cascade for yidris and it matters for like Karabek the merciless and vile smasher so um it it just got a lot of interesting facets to the card supply is really low on the foils it's a great edh card so i think this is this could pretty easily be a 15 dollar card um you know even within a month or two honestly
1: yeah I, i like this pick almost all the red decks in edh run this card um there's very few foils left online seems like a slam dunk to me
0: yep um and i actually bought a play set so (laughs) for once i will not go well my card spiked and i didn't buy any so good good job to everyone else that did (laughs) fair enough so all right
1: uh, just a couple other cards i want to mention um that have uh that are just things i've I've got my eye on that i'm buying like crazy in europe and i would feel remiss to not update people um ancient tomb soul ring chromatic lantern um uh Rings of Bright Hearth. These are masterpieces that you want inventions that you want to keep your eye on. Um inventory is extremely low on ancient tomb expeditions, whereas most expeditions have been stalled out. Um the lowest priced uh Ancient Tomb expedition I'm seeing on TCG is about 119. And then you've got within a couple of copies, people posting them at 135, 140, 160, 175. And I'm picking these up in Europe at Eighty-five dollars flat shipped. Um, <laughs> uh, there are a few better options at the moment, folks. You really need to look into Europe. Um, even if you want to operate locally, I think picking up some copies in the one hundred and twenty range or trading into them. Um, this could end up being a two hundred dollars plus expedition. Uh, Ancient tombs, when they're run in Legacy and Vintage, are run as a four of uh, generally, and uh, a couple of different decks run them and. Uh, this is uh, the kind of card that uh, you want to be on top of with how deep into the various formats the Eldrazi have gotten lately.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, we both picked a couple of those up. The Ancient Tombs, I'm a big fan. Um, definitely some some lucrative opportunities out there in Europe uh, if you have the connections and the capital and the time and <laughs> the various resources required to, to go through it. So, uh, well,
1: I mean, and Sol Ring is in pretty much the same boat. Um, for a card that just came out in the fall um you know very few copies in and around 130 left occasionally you can pick them up on ebay for a little less than that 115 120 if you get lucky at the end of an auction late at night um but i think that's going to dry up and end up a 200 plus card as well um it, it it's starting to look like the preferred choice versus the judge foils um and uh, this could end up being the penultimate soul ring for the time being
0: as the owner of the judge foil that is very annoying
1: Yeah, I've got a Judge Foil too. I think it's gorgeous. uh, And I don't have any intention of, of selling it anytime soon. But even the inventory on those is relatively low for the near mint copies. Like there's only four listed on TCG and they range from 140 to 170. So I mean, both of these could go hand in hand up to 200.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's been that price for a while, though. This is a type of card that supply is never going to be high, right? Like you're not going to see 60 copies of Judge Soul Rings. I mean, there's just aren't that many out there and most people are sitting on them. So I'd imagine like you and I, you know, we have them in deck. So I imagine that these tend to only filter out into the market when essentially when a player sells out and happens to own one, which, you know, is, is pretty rare because you probably didn't buy a Judge Soul Ring. The type of person to buy a Judge Soul Ring isn't the type of person that just willy nilly ditch their collection.
1: Well, the interesting part, though, is that because we just got the masterpiece, you would expect that either there would be a bunch of masterpieces in the system, um, or uh, the Judge Foyer Ring would be like kind of th- would be filling back up if people preferred um, the masterpiece. But neither of those things is taking place. And in fact, at one point there were seventy or eighty Soul Rings listed on TCG closer to peak supply. Um, but you know, Kaladesh is not being opened that much anymore. Um, we're we're heading down the curve. So um, it's very likely that demand is going to outpace supply from here on out. And it's also very likely that we're not getting another foil Sol Ring for a while. Um, so, uh, you know, Sol Ring is going to show up again and again in Commander products. But until they decide that they're going to print foils in those sets, which is a thing that could happen, but we've seen no indication that it will anytime soon. Um, you know, I, I feel very safe, even at U.S. retail prices, getting in on the Sol Rings.
0: I don't know. Maybe Amuncat's going to have uh, masterpiece series things with holes in them, and then soul ring <laughs> will be printed there too. <laughs>
1: the Think jewelry that that Bolas wears. The um, yeah,
0: there you go. Rings of Bright Earth. Yeah. <clears throat> I,
1: I, all I can tell you is I picked up eight more soul rings in Europe this week. Four more ancient tombs, and a couple of foil walking ballistas, and uh, push another fifteen hundred or so into into that market because it's just too good to be true.
0: All right. Um, Okay, so let's move on to segment three, our metagame we can review. Uh, We're looking at Grand Prix Pittsburgh, uh, the standard event and uh, of all places, Pittsburgh. Um, I feel, I have to admit, a little vindicated um, because in my article prior to this weekend, I was like, hey – Mardu vehicles clean up the pro tour, but I don't think that that deck is sustainable. It's very linear. It's not going to adapt to a metagame that hates it very well. I think that security has a good shot and I don't think that green black is going anywhere because it's very flexible. It has a lot of tools or several builds. So I am tickled pink to see, that uh that not only was the top eight it was won by grand green black, and also there were one, two, three, four, five green black decks in the top eight, and uh one, two, three, four, five more in ninth through sixteenth. Um, and I don't see us getting away from this in the near future. Like we're going to see a reduction in green black a little bit, but it's not going to be that much, especially because of how many builds there are. Um, so you can really adjust the stack to be extremely aggressive, or you can push a kind of back the other way, play a much more controlling game, a little more Obnixilus action, that type of thing. Um, I think the prices are not saturated on this yet. So like Rishkar is still, I think, around $5 or shoot, he was the last time I looked, um, maybe a little above that. Uh, walking Blista is just under 10 maybe not quite a little over 10 So there's definitely room for the prices on these to grow a little bit, but they're going to be kind of subtle gains, you know, 10 and 15, 20% week over week. Um so there's still a little bit of value in there, but I not, I'm not i not advocating that you should go buy any of it uh, expecting returns. Um, what do you think on all this?
1: Now that we've got like four weeks worth of results, there's no denying that the green-black strategies have been the most consistent. They have the most top eight presence um, other than at the Pro Tour. Um, they still put some copies in and very close to the top eight at the Pro Tour. Um, and it's just, as you said, it's pr- proven to be a flexible uh, shell that can tweak to meet the metagame. I th- I still think that you know all three of Mardu Vehicles, the various Green Black decks, Copycat, um, all have a shot on any given weekend. Like the the power levels are not the, the gaps in the power levels are not as important as the skill of the player, the experience of the player, and the tweaks they've made for you know last week's metagame. Uh, at this point, um, it was also interesting that GP Pritzburg, your buddy, won right. Somebody from your local play group. <laughs>
0: He did. Uh our buddy Ryan Hare, we're all in the same about 15 of us in a Facebook chat, local players here. It's myself, him, uh Alex Bianchi who won two Grand Prix Pittsburghs ago. He was uh, cited as the reason, one of the reasons that Splinter Twin got banned. Um <laughs> so we were we were all really excited for that. That's it's really I don't know if you've had the opportunity but to watch the grand like watch a Grand Prix and watching your friend battle for top 8. That's exciting. I have to say that is the most fun I ever have watching Magic.
1: Well, I mean congrats to Ryan and uh funny you should mention that cuz Dan Fournier, from uh, local my my game shop face to face. Oh yeah, yeah, was also in top eight, and uh, and he's been doing really well um, out on the circuit lately. And uh, Dan's a great guy, very smart Magic player, um, excellent analytical mind for for constructed formats. And he was playing copycat control um, to a, I guess a, a fifth place finish. Um, this is the, you know, four Felidar Guardian and four Saheli Rai, and then a whole bunch of control and uh, card draw spells, Glimmer of Geniuses, Anticipates, Harness, Lightnings, Immolating, Glares, Negates, Shocks, etc., um, with the Torrential gear hulks at the top end. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to see that both Green Black and the Copycat decks have these different configurations. It's kind of like you can reconfigure them based on what you're expecting for the weekend, and if you get lucky with your matchups, then you, you, you've got to and you're you know, you're, you've put in the hours and you're just a great player. Um, you know, you've got a better than average chance of winning through.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I think, I think some of our guys know Dan Fournier at least kind of been passing. I mean, we play in Toronto. Well, I shouldn't say we, they play in Toronto pretty regularly. So they all cross paths. Yeah. I mean, our, um, our,
1: our cities are only an hour and a half away. So, um, yeah. the, the Toronto guys often head south of the border.
0: Yep. Yep. So, I mean, overall standard, it looks to me like we're going to have a strong, very strong green black pillar in the near future. Mardu vehicles will sort of be like the third tier one deck. Saheeli will kind of float around there, too. I expect that to basically take over second. And then you'll have some scattered card decks like um blue black control and things of that nature. But, you know, there was an event recently, and I, I don't remember which one. I don't have the tweet in front of me, but somebody pointed out that like in the top 32 or 64, there was like not a single outlier of deck archetype. It was like every single one of them was one of like basically four, three or four deck to archetypes, which is really interesting for a standard event. You don't usually see that level of consistency. Um, so, you know, we've got, what are we three weeks away from the second standard banning? Uh, so I would not be surprised to see like Felidar Guardian and, um, Maybe, I don't know. Did do they hit whining constrictor? Do they hit walking? Probably not walking ballista. I don't know. I'm not sure which card, but I could see them chop a little bit out of Saheeli green black and see if they can revitalize the format before it gets too stale.
1: This is an interesting test of that policy. Um, yeah. Cause we
0: haven't really seen it in effect yet. Right. That's a really good point. Like how, how eager are they going to be to pull the trigger?
1: Yes. And, and there's, and really what it boils down to is this, are they going to start performing regular maintenance on standard so that um, and risk the potential negative goodwill that might come from that on the premise that um, keeping the format fresh is more important than protecting the value of all of the cards they've just printed? Or are they going to go with the kind of status quo that we've seen from years past, where unless something is super, super dominant, they're going to be hands-off about it? Um, this will be a very good indicator, uh, uh, a signal in the next couple of weeks as to how we should be investing in this format and on what basis. Um, Felidar Guardian is not a dominant card right now. That combo has not played out to be the boogeyman that we were expecting. That's not to say that it couldn't end up in that position later this year. Once we get some additional cards from new sets, who knows what crazy brokenness. If they really did miss it, and I find that so hard to believe, but let's say that they missed it.
0: They um, say hey, they have said that over and over. Sam Stodd said, yep, we completely missed it.
1: If, if they missed it there, what else did they miss that's coming out in Amonket that, that is, that is also, that makes it even more busted? And if they know that it, you have to imagine that given the uproar about the printing of this combo, they may have gone back to look at, and did a double sure. check on what's coming out in the next couple sets to see if they also missed other interactions. And if they find that they did indeed do so, then we might get a preemptive ban. Um, on, on the other hand, they could just decide to to, to wait until it's a real problem.
0: JR, who uh, is over on Money Draft with Jason Ault, brought up a, a really good point. He's like, you know, there is a, a narrow subset of, of effects that tend to lead to broken combos. Um, and, you know, a lot of them start with the word whenever, um, because that, that really sets off some of these chains. And, uh, he, you know, he's like, I don't understand how they can... Like, they should have the small list of effects to check for, like, before it goes to print. Like, okay, everybody stop and look through the format and see if any cards match one of these mechanic effects. And if it does, we need to double check and make sure that there are no infinite combos. Like, bound, like, uh, flickering permanence immediately is a good thing to go through and be like, uh, oh, is there any chance that this is going to be busted? Um, you know, does it something to say whenever X untap? Cause eh, maybe we should really think about this and make sure we didn't put any two card combos in. Three card combos is fine, but, uh, int- yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's one of those things where, it kind of reminds me of like the FBI and the CIA, and they're happy to cultivate the image that they are everywhere watching everything and know everything because th- people thinking that they are is useful in uh, the reality of the situation is they can't watch everything and they can't know everything. So they don't want people to know <laughs> what they don't know, right? And so Wizards wants you to think that this is all sort of on purpose and they, they are observing all of this and whatnot. But the fact of the matter is they, they just they aren't.
1: Well, I mean, the thing is that sets go through a multi-month design and development process. And during a lot of that, they are doing constant testing in the Future Future League, which is the internal um, standard play league, where they do, in fact, assemble decks, play them, test them, provide feedback to design and development, and then they iterate. But at a certain point, you get down to the last couple of weeks of like putting a set to bed where you've got to finalize your list. And what can happen that I can believe will lead to these kind of situations, having been on these kind of cycles in, in other parts of the industry, is that – um you know, a problem arises in some other portion of the set, and development provides pushback and says, we're cutting these 10 cards, we need replacements. And they've got some backup cards that have been cut earlier, and they pull them in and they make some tweaks to them that seem appropriate at the last minute, but they don't have time to go back and do a full testing cycle again. And that can be how some stuff slips through. And normally what happens is that just means a card is a little better than it's supposed to be or a little worse, um, and no, it never really ca- creates an uproar. You know, I, I don't know at what point Felidar Guardian came in, but these are the kinds of situations that could arise. And honestly, I think we can forgive them um, on occasion. The real issue is that the power level of the best cards in Standard has been so much higher than the average card in Standard over the last year. Talking about things like Smuggler's Copter, before that, Jace Finn's Prodigy, Walker, um, cool The Promised End, uh, Marvel when it was at its height. These cards feel ratcheted up just a little too high like they were designed given a little boot juice at the end to drive the hype train and i think that that's a a dangerous space to be in it it's important to make i I think that their policy of making uh story key story points into exciting cards like they did with emmercool is an important thing but they need to temper uh fine-tune the process of adjusting the power level on these cards so that the formats are a little bit more wide open, there are more possible playable decks and cards, and, you know, things don't just get whole swaths of cards are just not knocked off the table due to the power differential.
0: Yeah, it's... (laughs) I guess I see where they're going for it. You know, they're trying to make those cards exciting and interesting, but uh, yeah, it does invalidate lots of strategies. Maybe their concession to that is opening up a second ban window so that they can kind of, you know, let the cards explode onto the format. And then if they ended up too good, which may or may not happen, they can bring them back. I don't know. You know, it's it's kind of hard to know what nuanced strategies they're trying in-house until we're years and years past.
1: So I mean, uh, an interesting uh, example here is that Saheli has floated back down into the twelve dollar range. Originally Mm. picked up at four or five, sold out at twenty for most. A lot of us, Um, pretty happy to be (laughs) have gotten out when the getting was good on the vast majority of my copies, um, given its current price point. And you know what will happen if they don't ban the combo? Can she climb again, or are people just going to be too scared of bannings on an ongoing basis to go in deep on these cards?
0: I think that this definitely moves again if it's not banned. Uh, I would guess that that's a very – I mean, it's had a bad two weeks, but I still think that it's extremely plausible that people are like, eh, this might get banned. I'm a little reluctant. And then if it, we go through that window and it misses it, it's safe until Amonkhet. Um, So I could see this shooting back up. So if this gets down to like – you know, we've got three weeks. If this drops down to like 8 or $9, oh, that is really tempting. That is real tempting. Because you would have a window to sell it again if it spiked, because they wouldn't ban it unless it suddenly became a really big thing again, but you'd have that window to sell it first.
1: I mean, I don't have numbers on the percentage of format that was playing green-black, but if I had to guess, I would say that the two copies of Copycat that made it into the top 16 at Pittsburgh um, are roughly equivalent in terms of uh, push-through percentage from day one um, into the top 16 – to the green blacks. You know what I'm saying? I think a lot a lot of people have assu- have come to the conclusion that Green Black is the deck. And I bet there was a lot more Green Black decks than there were copycats. So the fact that we got two of sixteen is still, you know, a decent showing and could get pushed higher if if the deck gets additional cards.
0: Okay, so uh that's that's a good it's a good look at standard. Let's jump into uh segment four kind of Reader questions, um, but there there were two websites, James, that you wanted to touch on briefly, I think, before we got too deep into those. Uh, which one did you want to talk about first here?
1: Yeah, two things I wanted to uh, draw people's attention to. Um, one is a startup called Cardsphere, uh, a new platform for trading Magic the Gathering. Um, basically, the story here is that they are trying to re create a PukaTrade type experience with some tweaks and fixes that are meant to uh, solve all the problems that derive from PukaTrade having to manage their Puka points uh, as a currency. So I think my current understanding of the way this is going to work, um, and they're not live quite yet, but they're coming soon, um, certainly within the month, is that you send out cards uh, on a push basis, just like you do on PukaTrade. So people put them on their want list, you send them the cards, and you get the credit. Um, and you pay a slight fee as a seller to send the cards. And then you pay what looks like to be about a 10% fee, um, when you cash out. So basically, um, you can pull, uh, your credits out as cash and they take a, they take a 10% hit, uh, off the top. So you send out $25 worth of cards. You're going to take a little fee in the middle there. And then another 10% when you exit and be left with something in the 20 to $21 range, So something in the neighborhood of maybe a 15% fee. Um, This has the potential to be very interesting as an alternative to Puka trade for those of us who, um, whose main concern isn't not having cards to send out, uh, of which many of us have thousands. It's more about how do I get to liquidity from uh, after I've sent out a couple grand worth of cards.
0: Yeah, this is, this is curious. It's basically like somebody's taking Puka trade and TCG player and shoving them together. Um, I guess, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard without having more details to really kind of make a judgment about this. It's a curious concept. Um, I'm wondering about the cash out via PayPal. Like, so if I have, you know, a thousand points, is the cash out, is it floating? Is that, does that exchange rate float or is it locked against the dollar? Cause if it's locked against the dollar value, I guess that's, that locks the, card values within the system, right?
1: My my understanding is it's not floating. There's no exchange rate going on at all. This is just a fee by percentage that they're charging for you to get your money out. So if you want to pull out 25 or 50 or 75 or a hundred dollars, they'll give it to you in cash and they're taking their fee. The way that's probably going to work is that they're going to pre-fund the system with a lot of money. Um, so that they can, uh, because you know, money never enters the system, right? That's the, that's the weird part. Um, it, these payouts have to be funded based on uh, the uh, cash that they're capturing at the time that you exit if you follow my meaning um, because the, the buyer doesn't pay in cash
0: yeah so they the, so the card sphere the system ends up receiving points when somebody sells out how are they giving points back to people
1: well, there's no points. It, it's missing on their page, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that what I just said is not entirely correct. And I think we're going to have these guys on the show next week so they can straighten us out. But okay. the, the, what it, what I'm guessing is actually happening is the buyer is paying, but the money goes to the system. So they end up being kind of like PayPal. They're holding a bunch of money and they can make money on that. Um, because it's not all getting pulled out at once. Um, and then they're getting a cut of the cash um when you exit uh to cash
0: so okay so so i guess uh, as i kind of wrap my head around this, it sounds like almost like it's essentially puka trade but the points are real money like you're not deal- there isn't a other currency there isn't a point that you're kind of exchanging money through it's just you have like 15 dollars in your account and you buy a card for 13 dollars worth of that so it's 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 digital money. There's no conversion rate. Which,
1: as, as far as I can tell, I mean, if they're not taking cash from the buyer into the system, which isn't properly detailed, as I said on their website, um, but if they're not doing that, then the only way this works is if they pre-fund the site with a tremendous amount of money, and then the problem, and and then you you know, you're they are funding um, the exits based on the commissions they're gaining on the premise that. Everyone's not going to pull out all the money at once. It's kind of like running a bank in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, is that if everybody, if there is a run on the bank, then they would they would run into trouble. So I need to get some clarity from these guys uh, on the show next week about how exactly this is all going to work.
0: Yeah, and I still don't see. I, I'm not. It's not clear to me. So if I have, you know, I send somebody a card and I get 50 bucks worth of credit in my account, and I go, okay, I want to cash out. So they send me money from PayPal and my account empties. Well, I just sent. The the system. I sent Cardsphere fifty dollars worth of whatever. Uh, but how does that make it back from Cardsphere to the public? Because if you don't, then you are just permanently reducing the number of dollars in the system every single time somebody sells out. So got, I don't see the venue where it flows back into the system. Oh,
1: because because they're, they're taking a cut on on the way out. They're taking ten percent off the top. So you sent fifty dollars in cards, but you're only capturing forty five. They get to contribute that five to the the pool. Uh, as it were, minus whatever fees they paid uh, via PayPal, which is going to happen potentially twice, right? Because the the the, the buy. What I'm
0: saying is, what I'm saying is, when Cardsphere cashes people out, they receive digital funds. I don't see anywhere on here where Cardsphere is ever putting money back into the like back into people's accounts. Where does Cardsphere give people money? Because if they're not doing that, then there's never any money entering people's accounts right? Like there's a million dollars worth of value within the user accounts as people sell out that million dollars goes down. But how is it ever going from cards here back into the, into the market?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, to, to make sure that we don't slander Cartier's yeah. plants. Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> we, we, we may as well wait and ask all these questions, uh, live and get some clarity. So take everything we've said about these guys with a grain of salt. Um, and I'm sure they, they will be happy to show up and give us, uh, the full detail and then we will grill them properly next week. Uh-
0: I would much rather rush to judgment without any information whatsoever. <laughs> That's far more my speed. Uh, the other car, the other site we were looking at was Monitraders. This looks like a MTGO subscription service for renting cards. So it's kind of like, uh, what is it? Tidal or, uh, Microsoft's old MP3 store where you didn't buy songs. You just essentially rented a library for a monthly payment. Um, the, the prices on this are pretty wild. It's, you know, 10 bucks a month basically seems like it allows you to play Popper. Um, just kind of rent Popper decks, uh, in, you know, if you want to play, if you were, if you play Moto daily and you want to, um, to really swap between standard and modern decks regularly, it's 60 bucks a month. That is a good chunk of change. And I, I'm sorry, I guess, I guess I have not described the system yet for our listeners. So do you want to give them a rundown?
1: Sure. So the the thing here is that you play a subscription rate and then you get to rent cards and decks up to a certain tick value. So at the basic level, you're paying 10 bucks a month for up to a hundred ticks worth of deck value Thirty-five a month to get three hundred and fifty ticks, and sixty dollars a month gets you seven fifty ticks. So, uh, and there's also a concept called mana hours. And mana, uh, one mana hour is one ticket in value per hour. So, for example, if you have one ticks of cards rented out for one hour, then you have used one mana hour. Uh, if you have a deck that is worth three hundred and fifty ticks and you rent it for five hours, then you've used seventeen fifty mana hours. And the various tiers have different maximum mana hours. Um, that you can rent them. So the idea here is you don't just hold this deck all the time. You you hold this deck for a certain period of time then you hand it back in so somebody else can use it in their next daily tournament and then you come back and under your subscription you do it again on Saturday and again the following Saturday or whatever. Uh, the premise being that they want to be able to get the greatest uh, amount of distribution for each card so that they're making their money and you you only have the deck for the period of time that you really need it um, and you're motivated based on the mana hours premise to, to hand it back in as fast as you can so that you can get another deck and another deck without uh, busting your subscription and I, I think where this is interesting is actually for the people that like to play a bunch of random low-cost decks like if you're playing re- if you're trying to bust new uh uh crappy decks in either standard or modern or legacy that use a bunch of bad cards where they might only be worth like you know the whole deck is worth like 10 tickets or something or or 25 tickets, then this $10 a month plan could potentially be like really great for brewers. Um, And if you're, if you're a competitive player who uh, does a lot of research and does a lot of testing and likes to be able to respond nimbly to metagame shifts, um the nice thing about the higher tier plans is that it could potentially allow you to fluidly move in and out of three or four different decks that you like so if you think it's going to be a good weekend for green white tron you get into that if you think death shadow aggro is going to be the thing to play or infect or whatever you can kind of fluidly move in and out of these without having to worry about bleeding value every time you're buying and selling the cards or holding on to a multi-thousand dollar collection
0: you know all right i gotta tell you I don't play Moto. I have to preface this. So this is purely from sort of an outside perspective. But this, let me find the correct words here. I don't see a uh, a compelling reason to be the customer or the company, the 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 website monitors in this um, model. If I'm a player. Um, the margins of liquidity, um, the cost, the difference between buying and selling a card on moto are generally quite tight because there's zero, essentially zero overhead. Um, so, you know, if a card is like 20 tickets, you know, if, if if you can buy a card for 20 tickets, James, uh, what, what can you usually sell it back to a bot for 17 or 18?
1: Well like let me give you a good example. Let's take a look at like the price of Liliana of the Veil vale, uh on goatbots.com, one of the the prominent uh bots, right? So if you need a play set of Lilianas, you're going to pay $78 for them and you could sell them back for 70. So you're actually bleeding out $32. Um if you want to cycle through that that version of Lilianas and that would be an entire month of the premium service.
0: I I mean, I suppose so. And me you know, Liliana certainly a, a large card. I wonder are the margins that wide on every card, or is it really just the ultra format staples? That you see that.
1: Well, I mean, and even if the percentage margins are relatively consistent, like in that range, like somewhere around five to ten percent, maybe the real value, you know, if you look at a Snapcaster mage, for instance, also from Innistrad, um, you're paying nine dollars and ninety cents and you can sell it back for like eight eighty. So it's a you know, it's it's still roughly about ten percent, but you're only losing four dollars on on that transaction. But if you added up the whole deck, right, like say you're playing Grix's control or something, and you need all the fetches, uh, you're gonna play Liliana's and Snapcasters and some other stuff. Then, you know, you might bleed out 50 or 100 ticks to flip it back out. Um, well, and, and if you're I, doing that, if you're, if the kind of person that plays the same deck forever, this makes no sense for you. But I think that the, there might be a case for, you know, a, a prominent grinder who can make back the subscription by vis-a-vis the flexibility of picking the right deck for the metagame based on what five-o lists, uh, what the metagame percentages look like on MCG Goldfish and what the five, recent five-o lists look like. Um, Maybe there's something there.
0: I, well, I just I guess I look at this and I go, you have to be flipping through decks really rapidly to uh, essentially reasonably rapidly to even cover the monthly cost really rapidly to, to make it worth it because you have to keep turning these things back in. So if you play Moto, if you're one of these guys that plays 10 hours a day, um, even if you're churning through decks that entire time, you're still using – a ton of these mana hours that they have, right? So, like, you're gonna cap out on that. Um, so, you, you know, even though you're saving money by because you're flipping decks constantly uh you're gonna run out of time allotment and then you're like paying for more so do you really end up saving money you also have the burden of like having to remember to turn it back in so if you get if you lose and you salt you get salty and you just close moto and go to bed like whoops you <laughs> you kept like a couple play sets of cards overnight and just burned all of your time for the month type of thing um or if moto crashes or whatever. Uh And, you know, on the flip side, you know, and the flip side of this is if you're monetators, how many people big is your market for this? Like how many people really switch decks that fast to make this a profitable model? And even more so, I'm also concerned like with, you know, the future of moto sort of more up in the air today than it really has been in a long time. You know, is this really a a model that you're shoving on that you're kind of, okay, this is what we're going to do when it could all go up in smoke in like two years.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is not a year I would have chosen to uh launch a moto piggyback startup. Um so I mean, I wish them all the best and I hope it works out for them. If the market's there, they'll make some money. Um and if it's not, then this thing will fold within the year because <laughs> the 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 overhead bleed will be much higher um than the revenue profile if uh, if you're right
0: right yeah and again i don't know anything about these people and i you know i wish them all the best i hope they're successful i just kind of look at it and go yeah i don't know i really like at least with card sphere i'm like okay i can kind of see where this comes from this could be useful but this one just uh it hmm, I, I much harder sell for me
1: all right uh so let's uh there was some you uh some listener questions that we wanted to run through just quickly before we wrapped up
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh we're gonna talk about a couple of these. So the first one comes from oh wait, hold on, I have the tweet. Uh oh god, what is this Twitter handle? Uh W no femoral twenty two fourteen uh said asked if we can talk about um, you know, when are you supposed to trade down a twenty dollar card for like four five dollar cards? Like kind of how do you make those decisions if you're if you're in the middle of that trade? Uh
1: that is only a great idea if you think that the $20 card is stalled and the $5 card is about to pop. So if you were trading out a couple of Abrupt Decays a couple months ago for 4 Sahili Rai because you were convinced it was eventually going to get busted... Um, you end up looking brilliant because you turned your static $20 into 80 minus Vs. Um, that's a good place to be. Um, you don't want to be trading down like that when both are stalled, or you're trading out of a modern or legacy staple for a rotating uh, set of standard cards, um, unless it's you're doing it because the alternative is cash that you don't want to spend. Um, uh, if you've got a lot of money wrapped up in your collection and that those you know you're not a regular seller you're not wrote you know cycling through your collection and and getting full value out of it then those kind of trades are good just because they prevent you from from spending money out of your wallet
0: yeah you know i i i think of it in this context as you you have a card that's worth twenty dollars and you kind of have this idea in your head of what is its what is its tr- likely trajectory, right? Like, is this a card that I think is just going to stall in price? Is, do I think it's going to rise? If so, how likely is it to rise? And how high will it rise? How far can it fall? Um. So, you know, once once smartphones became standard in trading, which was years ago, now this kind of became the de facto way to, to gain value on a trade was you weren't making value in the trade, right? Both parties were putting up 20 bucks, but you were coming to the table with the knowledge that this card was at its peak, right? Like it was a standard rare. We couldn't really be more expensive. It was 20 bucks. It was time to get rid of it. But you were picking up these sort of like quiet mythics, like Avengers Endicar, for $5 after the Block Pro Tour, because you're like, these can't really be much cheaper. Uh, and there's clearly demand for them. So that's how I go, would be going into all of these trades is just trying to, in my head, think about what is it the likely trajectory for each of the cards involved, um, and trying to make sure that the card I'm getting rid of is kind of at the closer to the peak and the cards I'm picking up are, are much have a lot more uh, potential energy in them. Uh, Okay. So uh, next question, this is from K cab. Uh, You know, he wants to know about the modern masters 2017 allocations and the implications of that. Um, And we have kind of a similar question from Miro Boto, kind of the same thing. Um I mean that's kind of, it's kind of a large topic I guess to unpack but uh you know what what do you I mean I, you, from what I what I heard was that currently distributors are not capping Modern Master 17 allocations at this point but I, I don't know if that's true.
1: I suspect it is along the lines of um they they had a pre-existing plan to try to test and see um if they open the floodgates how much the product will sell. It could be an indication that they feel pretty confident in the product. If you think the set is jam-packed with value, um, then leaving the floodgates open is a great idea. If the set is uh, of lesser uh, EV than the last two and lesser than Eternal Master's, Um, then it's going to end up being a very bad idea because the story, the narrative around the set will be that it's rotting on shelves, rotting at distributors, and you're going to see boxes drop into the 150, 165 dollar range, on the basis that people are getting them at like 130 or 140 from the distributors. Um, the, to be clear, the, the story as you guys were telling it, you know, telling it on cartel aristocrats from the, the vendors that were on the show was that, the, you know, on prior sets of this type, they were clearly limited. They, you know, with Modern Masters, they could only get access to X number of cases. I think it was just a, a handful. Um, Modern Masters 2015 was significantly more, but it still had a limit. Um, I think most of the, the vendors I remember talking to about that set got like uh, two, three or four cases, and some of it was direct through Wizards. In this case, there there is no Wizards direct to the stores it's all coming through the distributors which leaves uh the whole um you know cap concept to be kind of nebulous because depending on which distributor you're working with their caps are going to be are really going to be order determined right like they're going to take the 50 or 100 stores that they deal with um, and in some cases hundreds of stores and and they're going to look at their first wave of orders and decide how much more to uh, pull down the pipeline from wizards right
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a fair point about the set being jam-packed with value and, and Wizards wanted more boxes on the market. I hadn't really thought about that too much. So that's, that's a valid reason to try and put a lot of copies out there. And they might have tried to pack it a little tighter given that Modern Masters 2015 was a little flat. But, you know, we talked about this a week or two ago as well. I, I'm just, in general, very, um, very apathetic about Modern Masters 2017 from a, like, do I want to buy boxes type of perspective? Um, it's just not a market that feels really robust anymore. So uh, I, I, I guess, it, and, you know, especially with what we saw with Eternal Masters. So I'm I'm kind of just watching this from a distance. I don't want to be involved with any of this at all. Uh,
1: people have said like, oh, you know, they're... Underselling the set because they haven't been making a lot of noise about it. I don't think that's correct. Like we're still in the sale, like core sales sales period for *Ether Revolt*, right? So it's not time to be trying to sell through another set already. Like they're going to make a lot of noise in in the next couple of weeks when the timing is right because this thing comes out on March seventeenth, twenty seventeen, M seventeen. Like so, somebody in marketing picked like the super cutest date possible um for the release. Whether a uh late winter release is going to prove to be better for them than the summer releases have been in the past will be an interesting uh an interesting question. And it could be that the allocations are higher because they think that this sales period will see the target market have more money in play. Um but, you know, we'll we'll see how it plays it's, out. I'll tell you this much. I'm not rushing to the table to pre-order. <laughs> No. And and I'm not going after Japanese boxes until I see what's actually in this set and get a sense of the, the depth of the inventory.
0: Yeah, yeah, same with you. Maybe maybe people will make money on Modern Masters 2017. I'm not saying it's not possible. That people are, are not going to make me. I,
1: I, I, well, I mean, the way that I intend to make money, if at all, is to watch spoiler season and see what the, you know, sometimes you can take a look at what's been revealed and figure out the um, card number, like the set the card set number, uh, so that you can, uh, infer what cards would be between it in the number, in the, the numbers list and figure out what cannot be in the set, right? So like, if, yeah. you, if you have Flusterstorm at 157 and Getaxian Probe at 158, even though that card is now banned, um, you know that you cannot have, uh, another blue card between the two of them.
0: Right, which is which is a good point. People who have the time and patience to pay very close attention to spoiler season, I think, will be handsomely rewarded moving on the cards that can't show up. Um, but, you know, that's a that's a whole other topic. Um, well, and, so, and there's also
1: the, the, the premise of just holding a bunch of money on hand for when the full set is revealed and just trying yeah. to pull the trigger faster than everybody else on some of the obvious uh, things that are overlooked. Like, you know, Tarmogoyf might see a 10 or $15 spike. Um, you know, despite fatal push, uh, endangering their lives more often in modern, um, you know, that's a card that if it doesn't get a reprint here, uh, you know, might see some action and, you know, as would, you know, if Liliana or Snapcaster are left out, then those cards could definitely see action.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. I would expect probably like one or two cards to react within, 20 minutes to two hours of the full spoiler and then yeah. i think you'll probably see several more fall within a week or two um i don't think they'll all go right away but then again the market's been moving feels like faster and faster um over the last months and years so maybe you know maybe the it, it we'll see quite a few cards react uh really quickly i don't know It'll hey. be interesting
1: The other factor in play here is this kind of muddled narrative that's come out from their continued mishandling of perceptions of how much they are supporting this format. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. a bit of a a push and pull going on here because they're about to put out a new Modern Masters product that suggests that Modern is still um, on the table as a core format, but there's other, all these other indications that eternal formats in general are being kind of left to the side. And it's not that all of a sudden there are far, far less modern tournaments or that modern is being far, played far, far less locally. But you know, this, this started with them getting rid of the modern pro tour and making them all standard pro tours. And it continues as they um pull, uh, have reduced coverage of modern events, have, um, talked about modern less in, in public venues and are are generally sending a bunch of signals that have people wondering whether they can reliably invest in modern as a format, uh, in, in the coming, you know, weeks, months, and years, and, and know that they're going to still get to play that two years from now. Whereas two years ago, if you'd asked me, I would have said, oh, modern will be around for at least a decade. Um, you know, the, 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 at a certain point, this wasn't a discussion about whether modern would survive. It was, would legacy survive when they were switching all of the tournaments to modern. And then there was the period a couple of years ago where star city switched all of their, um, their, uh, legacy events to modern events where the vast majority of them and everybody was like, Oh, they're, they're leaving legacy in the dust bowl. And already <laughs> that was like
0: six months ago <laughs>
1: <laughs> and already the, the, this, the narrative has now shifted to, well, is that also going to happen to modern? Um, so, uh, they, and, and, there, there is less truth than there is emotion in, in that perception. But that, that just means that marketing is handling the situation, you know, terribly. PR and organized play need to get their act together and make sure that people understand what core, what formats are considered core, what, which ones are reliably um, going to be supported moving forward. And if they're going to make a demonstrable uh, move to only uh, considering Limited and standard as core, then that needs to be brought to the forefront so that everybody feels like they have a chance to react.
0: Yeah, this this definitely feels like a point where the community is sort of you know we have our divining rod out uh, you know trying to trying to read the bones as it is of 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 determining what wizards what messages wizards is trying to send. They may not realize at all that they have. Or at least they probably know it now, but didn't realize that heading in that they were kind of undermining the public's uh, confidence in the format. Cause people still love it. But yeah, you're right. Like, oh, uh, did these mean something? Or is this just a happenstance that we seem to get several clues that indicate that moderns not quite where they want to be anymore? So, um,
1: and And I've been vocal for the entire year, and we've discussed it multiple times that i I don't think that that eternal formats make sense for wizards as a business. if if yeah. they were if they were in a high growth period and it was like all guns a blazing across multiple formats, it just wouldn't matter. But because growth and revenues have been single digit, they they keep saying single digit uh, growth, which to me, if you're not naming a specific number and you're not making a big deal out of it, it means it's it's much lower than you would like it to be. Um, they are. There's been lots of indications that they're looking for other ways to build revenue, and you know through additional product releases, through the shortening of, and then the shortening of the standard um uh, life cycle, and then the switching of that, the flipping of that switch back the other way, um, when you know standard participation rates started to drop. Um, and it's always looked a little bit like they're flailing for most of 2016 and into this this year as well. And it, it leaves you wondering <laughs> what kind of custodianship is actually set up to protect the formats that we know and love.
0: You know, it's funny. I'm going to say this comment and then I'm going to go to the next user question because I don't want to inspire another 45 minute discussion. OK, you ready? OK, if they really do move away from eternal formats, the reserve list really comes into question at that point. Okay, <laughs> let's move on to <laughs> to the next user question uh, and I like this one. this is a good one uh your what is your oh wait what was the guy's name? uh Quad nines wants to know what is your best whoops win like have you found a, a box full of an old bulk rare that you forgot you'd spec'd on that had spiked for some completely unrelated reason? Uh, and you're like, oh, well, look at that, I have a bunch of money. I, I, now, I, I remember – I do remember going back to my parents' house years and years and years ago and pulling out my old magic cards and finding a dark depths because I had really liked the card way before Vampire Hex Mage was printed and had, you know, borrowed it, you know, taken it from a friend when it was, you know, probably 50 cents or something. It was a bulk rare. And I was like, oh, look at that, 50 bucks. Um, and I know I've dug up old trade binders that I had kind of set aside years later and found cards that had risen in price. I think I found a couple of chromatic lanterns at one point from a binder I hadn't used in a long time. Uh, Did you come up with anything?
1: Yeah, I've got a couple that I I can think of off the top of my head. Um, I think the first one was that way back in like 1996, uh, 95 or 96, I'm pretty sure I finished second in a vintage tournament running some kind of crazy gorilla shaman brew where I was just destroying everybody's artifacts um, <laughs> and I think I won a candelabra of Thanos that I then put into a, my male jewelry box that has all my cufflinks and shit that never see the light of day. And, <laughs> and your
0: thumb rings, I assume. And... <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> um, I did have an earring at one point in high school. Uh, oh, so yeah. those are probably in there and some like African necklaces that I wore at some point in, in the distant foggy past. Um, seven,
0: sh- hem- seven hemp necklaces
1: yeah sure all all that kind of nonsense that never <laughs> that was purchased and never worn, and I think the candelabra sat there for a better part of ten or fifteen years until it was worth significantly more money than it was at the time um and I pulled it out and it was in beautiful condition and it's uh sitting in my collection uh alongside some of the other jewels uh crown jewels uh in the closet now um but yeah, it was and, lost for lost and, for quite
0: and you're wearing the thumb rings so really yeah. you really found <laughs> yes. found a lot to be happy with. I do I remember I I have a bunch of beck and calls that I definitely bought in response to something with elves. Like I was hoping it was going to be big with elves and I grabbed a bunch of them and it didn't go anywhere. And then what are we like 3 years later and they printed these expertises and I'm like, "Oh, well, Sure. That works. (laughs) Like I paid like quarters for them and they're like three bucks. Now I'm still sitting on them because I think there's definitely more upside. But that was a pleasant, pleasant realization that I had bought that many because I definitely forgot about them.
1: Well, I mean, it was your fault that that I bought $1 foils last summer and they ended up being worth 10, but it's not like I lost them. Um, I I guess the other big whoops win was when I bought the super collection. Um, When I went to this guy's house and had like only about 20 minutes to browse through like 30 or 40 binders. Um, I vastly to my benefit underestimated the value of the collection, um, went home, did some math, you know, figured that the whole thing was worth maybe 25,000, uh, U.S. and made an offer of, uh, 14,005 U.S., uh, which he snapped off. Uh, that was like 18,000 something Canadian at the time, um, And, you know, his wife was thrilled because they got to remodel their kitchen. And then when I we went over with the truck and picked it all up, I didn't really have a chance to look at it for a few days. But then when I started flipping through binders, I I, I slapped myself in the forehead and I was like, holy shit, every single set is complete. Not just that he has a full play set of every card, like there was four non-foils of everything, but there was a foil on the back of all those play sets. So Mm. going through the seventh binder, the seventh binder was worth like $1,900 US by itself. Mm-hmm. seventh seventh mm-hmm. foils are crazy and yeah. th- there was the whole collection ended up being worth 45 grand or something and and I was able to unload it in the states for in the mid 20s you know within 3 months of buying it um and not because I'm great at mtg finance but because I'm terrible at
0: <laughs> evaluating collections apparently i i mean those collections those huge collections are like take a serious amount of man hours to catalog the biggest one that i ever the biggest one that i ever bought which was considerably less than yours but you know i think i paid like i don't know 1800 for it and i'm pretty sure i thought it was worth like six grand when i bought it and i got it home and it was worth like thirteen thousand, um roughly because there's just so much and you can't you know you flip through and you're like oh here's like a box of a thousand random foils and you're like even most of these kind of look like junk and then you flip through it and there's three brainstorms and a, a foil foil right and you're like oh well okay you know well there, there's explorations in with the commons like you know you just yeah. there's no way to know um on those large collections it would take hours and hours and hours to figure it out and it, that they generally don't want to go through all that and neither do you so Oh, it's it just part part of it. it.
1: Took me two weeks to go through that collection. It was absolutely mind numbing. Um, and yeah. every time I hear the bulk guys talking about their lives, I I'm so grateful I'm not them.
0: <laughs> yeah, those are fun. Like every now and then, but it, it reaches a threshold where you're like, this is just not amusing anymore. Oh, I feel like those um, guys
1: those guys are like like minor league drug addicts because they get these like awesome. <laughs> every time some weird little thing spikes, they get these awesome highs where they get to go through all their boxes and pull out the buried treasure, and that's a that's a wonderful feeling. But you still have to flip through cards for hours all week, all week long. And it's just, it's not, it's the kind of mind numbing labor. I, I just can't do, even if I'm front of, in front of Netflix, like I managed to get through super, the super collection, but when it was done, I said, I'm not buying another collection for years.
0: Yeah. My hands get sore actually. <laughs> like the muscle, the muscle on my, underneath my left thumb from just pushing the cards constantly.
1: Yeah, you, um, you start thinking about how thick of a pile you want to pick up at a time. That's when you yes, know it's you, yeah. you're way too deep down the rabbit hole.
0: Yep. Yep. Um, you know, and, and on a similar note though, you know, I have said this before and I will say this every time it comes up, you know, don't get rid of your bulk rares, like keep all of them. They will always be worth 10 cents. There's no reason to sell them today unless for some reason, like you really need the space or you need a couple bucks, just keep them and just have them hang out. You know, I have my box of bulk rares, I don't know, like six or 7,000, um, that I've accumulated over the years from buying collections and just I dump all my standard cards in there. All my standard rares as the format rotates and they're not worth enough. And basically if the card's worth less than $5, I leave it in the box. So like there's some Norn annexes in there too, stuff that's not bulk, but basically isn't worth bothering to sell on TCG player. um, Because that's a constant whoops. You know, I went through and I would say out of the the multiple play sets of retract I have, I think I pulled at least two or three play sets out of that box a long time ago. I pulled like 15 contagion engines out of that rare box Uh, When that spiked to $10, um, I have, I, you know, every time a card spikes, I go through and I flip through and I'll pull out a playset or two. Um, So it's just, you know, you're just like, well, whoops, it's sort of like an intentional accident almost. Like I'm just leaving the door open to these opportunities. So um, I think if you've got a good bit of bulk rares, that is a really good way to just keep getting paid over and over without having to put any effort into it.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the fantastic thing about this super collection situation was that, you know, the collection itself took up the better part of a room. Um, it was a few dozen, uh, four row, uh, bulk boxes, um, 40 plus binders and a whole bunch of like cardboard boxes full of like accumulated randomness. And there was no way for me to sell that through to whoever was going to buy it in the States. So the part of the collection that I ended up selling, um, was really only like 10 to 15% of the total cards because it was basically everything that was $10 or more, um, that I could get in three passes through the binders, um, without, you know, getting really granular about it. And, you know, the, the guy that bought it was super happy to get the tremendous amount of value that I offered. I was super happy to get the value versus what I had paid. And, you know, just last week when all of these kind of random split cards uh, start showing up in deck lists, I was able to go yank those out because I've still got, you know, I don't know, 10,000, 15,000 cards left out of this thing that are, like you said, going to be you know little bits and pieces of uh, contribution to the bottom line for years to come.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, oh, uh, also, I did play a casual deck before Zendikar existed. This would have been like a Lara standard. I was playing only Kitchen Table Magic, and I sucked it up and sprung for a $20 play set of Doubling Seasons. That was also a good one. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's, that's that's pretty sweet um uh good yeah ditto i, I bought a bunch of by- doubling seasons just because i thought the card was cool um yeah. a, a ways back so that's
0: <laughs> uh, i'm sure i have others but like they don't they're not coming to me
1: all right well i think we've answered the question um the, yeah. the last one on the list was somebody wanted to know uh about uh how to use puka trade for mtgo redemption and puka trade and discord um, so pretty much all of the action uh, for Puka Trade, certainly in the high-end uh, card region, is happening on their Discord channel. This is a uh, uh, a live kind of chat service um, that uh, a lot of companies are running as a, a way of interacting with their, their customers or having their customers interact with each other. Um, there's a couple of different channels uh, for PukaTrade, Trade, and pretty much anybody that's anybody on that platform, meaning people that are trading very frequently and still sending cards out, uh, is is live and accessible in that in that chat, um, and that's really where you want to be because most of the action on Puka Trade now is reciprocal, meaning that um, you're not, no one is going to send you anything unless you're also sending them something, especially if it, not if you're trying to get things like Moxon or uh, or what have you. Um, so if you're trying to get big deals done on Puka or trying to figure out a way to out your points, um, that's where you want The, the action is for the most part. Um, the concept of MTGO redemption via Puka trade is, um, trading your Puka points for, um, uh, magic digital cards, which is a feature they added several months ago. Um, and you can use that to then get your money uh, back out by turning it into a set that you order on from goat bots or whatever on magic online. And then you can, uh, in theory, get liquid by then taking the additional step of selling that set when it matures. Um, that's a lot of steps uh, for me. And <laughs> if you've got, if you're desperate to get out and you've got the time and energy to put into all that, um, it might only take you 20 or 30 minutes to arrange it. Um, I would much rather just sit on my Puka points and get the drip, drip, drip I'm getting without offering any bonuses whatsoever. I've got about 600 bucks left in that system, and every month or so I get sent a $50 card here, a couple of $20 cards there, $100 card, and I'm not sending anything else out because I just don't like the way the platform uh, has evolved, um, and uh, I can't get liquid fast enough. So I'm just going to spend most of 2017 trying to slowly extract my value where I can find it, um, and, uh, I'm hoping that something like, uh, this new platform card sphere might end up being the answer for the kind of action I'm trying to generate.
0: Yeah. I, I don't have too much to answer here. I have basically not used Puka trade in quite a while or the discord. I know that that's a a venue people use, and I haven't bothered with MTGO, so I'll let James's words stand on that. Uh, so that kind of wraps up our show for the week. Where can our listeners find you?
1: Uh, you guys can find me as always on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. Uh, I'd like to point out that I did a uh, booked a uh, or wrapped a two and a half hour interview with Dan Bach of Power Nine Fame. Um, one of the uh, admins over on the high-end Facebook group and one of the oldest and most successful uh, uh, Magic uh, tournament vendors and eBay power sellers. Um, it was a fascinating conversation, and you can look for it to be launched on MTG price over the next couple of days. What
0: about you, Travis? Uh, I am over on Twitter at MTG, or <laughs> not on Twitter at that address. I'm on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin B-U-M-P-I-N. Uh, I appear in cartel aristocrats most weeks, uh, not this week. And if you, I write on MTG price every Monday. And if you enjoy playing magic, check out scry.land, find magic in your area. We are hopefully rolling out the table view in the semi near future, which I think will add a lot of utility for people, um, as it is. So,
1: yep. Great site. And, uh, I tried to give the uh, frontier MTG frontier guys a kick in the butt to get their format listed on your site in the near future. Um, I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering.
0: All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 55. Uh, I think we're starting out our second year pretty strong here, James. I enjoyed our conversation and I will see you next week. Uh, Me too, Travis. And we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.